This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Card carrying basing at this point. Ben Alomar, director of sports analytics at ESPN. You stood next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post game podcast. This is Kate Massey, host of Warden Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio Sirius XM Channel 132 every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. We are the full crew this morning. Fellas, how's it going? How's it good. going with you? Going well. Good, 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 good. I am curious. There's a few things bouncing around. I'm actually very curious. We haven't had a full house in a while. We haven't had a full house in a while. And uh, curious what you guys uh, have been paying attention to. What has caught your eye? Well, for me... Um, interestingly, I just want to talk briefly, since I, I, in homage to you in college football and the Big 12, um, something caught my eye, but it only indirectly involves the Big 12. So looking at the college football playoff ranking list, there's one team on there that's surpri- not surprising me because of their ranking, but is it real in the following sense? Can they actually make the playoffs? And here's what I mean. So we have LSU sitting there, who I've been following the whole season. They have two losses. They're sitting there at number seven. Let's play the following scenario out. Michigan loses the Big Ten championship game, okay? Georgia loses the SEC championship game, certainly possible, very possible. Oklahoma, who's ahead of them, loses the Big 12 championship game or loses one more game. Now, that leaves LSU as the next team. Do I really think a two-loss LSU team is going to— No, I just took—all I've done—you're going to correct me in my simplistic (laughs) thinking. I've taken four, five, and six who are ahead of LSU. But Eric, come on, man. If Michigan loses, that means Ohio State won. But why does—so Ohio State has how many losses? Two, I believe. Yeah, so are they going—that's my question. Are they going to take a two-loss— we've been having this discussion before. Are they going to take a two-loss, whether it's OSU or uh, LSU? Are they going to take a two-loss team— from whether it's the Big Ten or the SEC, over, let's say, I'll keep going back to this, nobody wants to hear it, a zero-loss UCF team, or maybe a one-loss, maybe Washington State, I think they have one loss. What are they going to yeah, do Washington there? Washington State could get in, theoretically, out of the Pac-12. The, the trouble with LSU is they won't have even won their division, and you want them over a similarly recorded Big Ten champion. Seems unlikely. But you think but a big two-loss two loss Ohio State team is going to go? If that scenario if, happens. In that scenario, I mean, I, I can give you some – I could b- b- get into the probabilities in, in, if, in a minute, but it, I think probably, if I had to guess. I mean, I mean I, I, I've been looking around and – They will have just beaten Michigan. Ohio State still has high – High probability. They're only one loss, by the way. Maddie's, Maddie D's yeah. corrected us. Maybe, I mean, I guess you're predicating well, totally on them somehow then. losing. The... That's totally different then. If Ohio State has only one loss, yeah. then Ohio State running the table is a totally and, and, different right. scenario. And by then. the way, UCF's not getting in. The chance is zero. Zero that they're getting oh. in. Okay, so just don't quit playing out those possibilities. They're not going <laughs> to get in. Is that, Kate, because accomplishment is easily subordinate to quality on the field? No, it's not easily subordinate. I mean, this it's is not like the big thing that the committee grapples with and all the rhetoric grapples with. It's like best versus most deserving. Um, but people believe they're neither best nor most deserving. <laughs> yes, I understand that. I mean, they have not, they're undefeated, but they really haven't played much. And if you look at power rankings, I mean, they're, they're, not, they're not a top 10 team according to power rankings in terms of quality. 
You asked what caught my eye in sports. Well, You're just uh, obsessed so with I, LSU this I, year. I have a question so for you. No, I, in this case, I'm obsessed with LSU in the sense that them being at number seven doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Like, I see their path being extraordinarily narrow to get in, if not almost impossible. Therefore, why doesn't the committee recognize but that their path is extraordinarily but unlikely? But they don't do it that way. They don't, they don't say this is recognizing your future path. This is if we had to slot it today. So, you yeah, know, they, then you have someone jumping them. I mean, this is where that this happens. That happens. Can, can happen. I ask a, uh, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to not cue Georgia up because they have to go through Alabama. If you want to recognize difficulty of path, then Georgia's not in the top ten right now. So that's why you just can't do it that way. It's it's some kind of this is our ranking if we slotted today. So why is Georgia so such a long shot? They just to, just have to beat Alabama. Is that just that? Is <laughs> that, that why? Because they just have to yeah, beat Alabama. They're not going to get yeah. it if they don't beat Alabama. And, but and, if they do beat Alabama, then they're what happens sure. next? <laughs> I mean, think about that. Well, then that's, Alabama that's and Georgia a, are in. Alabama, who gets bumped? Well, the question will be, it'll be Alabama is the question. Now we're back to Eric's will they whole get, scenario. Will Alabama get bumped if they lose to Georgia? Well, this is what happened last year. And it's even more extreme happen thing, thing happened last year where they, they didn't make the title game. They got knocked out of the title yeah, game by you Auburn. And yet Alabama they still, wasn't even in the SEC championship game last year. But people believe they were so good that they, they brought them in over a two-loss Big Ten champion, Ohio State. And, and so there's precedent for it. But it would be like the third year or something in a row that they would have less, left off the Big Ten. I mean, it's a, I don't know. These things are fun to speculate about. I guess we have nothing else interesting to talk about in college football this year because it's been the most boring season of college football I can ever remember. So really? I, yeah. It's just it's Alabama, Clemson, and then a but I, I think you're, I think you're right. If Georgia were to beat Alabama, I think they would probably have to take Georgia and Alabama. And then who they bump? Goes Notre Dame? No, they bump Michigan. Michigan? An undefeated Notre Dame team. If Notre Dame stays undefeated, Notre Dame Michigan beat Michigan. Beat Michigan. So Notre Dame is going over and, Michigan and, if, if Notre, Notre Dame wins out. In all, in all likelihood, that's exactly right, even though most people think Michigan. Most people would favor Michigan. I mean, the, the point spread would be plus seven or something, Michigan versus Notre Dame now, again. not First game of the season they lost. So despite that, you can't, you can't pass up on an undefeated Notre Dame. And so it would come down to, in that scenario, it would come down to a one-loss, big uh, SEC runner-up Alabama versus a one loss Big Ten champion, either Michigan or Ohio State. And I don't think it's obvious that they would take Alabama, but it's 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 a, it'd be a real question. It'd be it'd be a, it'd be a controversial thing. Uh-huh. Clemson, Clemson's in. Clemson's going to be. So yeah. since you can, can I bring up a new finding? One that that I've been working on with a student that we discovered yesterday that I could share with you guys and tell me what you think before I put it into print. I'm trying to predict future uh, NFL success from high school level ability re- rankings, and one of the questions becomes which college team offers a bump in probability of making the NFL. So conditional on everything we know about you. So some of the most of the good teams, you know, sweep up the best players. So obviously, if you have much better talent to start with, you're a much better chance of making the NFL. The question is, do you get a specific bump conditional on what we know about you, given the, the program can we, that you're in? Can we hypothesize about mechanisms first? Well, yeah. Well, I have no idea about mechanisms. So yeah, you can certainly do that. So that that this the the the, the seeming mechanism, kind of the obvious one, is that they, they develop players better. That's right. Yeah, of course. But, but there are two. But other there's also that, opportunity too. Like the opportunity, opportunity to of play course, yeah. at like a place like Alabama, which is already stacked, presumably is much less. Okay, that than one other... goes. That one goes against the top teams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But going, yeah. There's there's two others that go for the top teams. One is the credential you get if Saban decides you're that good. Yeah. You yeah. may get an extra bump because it's a filter. It's like you know, a lot of people think that top NBA programs. You know, the cynical view is we don't actually train them, we just certify them. Right. That if they could get in here, then they pass right. a well, certain filter. There's another mechanism, though. 
the other mechanism that goes in the, in the is a, is a psychological one, and that is we have a terrible time stripping individual performance free from context. And so these guys come in and they play with great teammates, mm-hmm. and they look better in, in, in as a result. And we have a hard time understanding that. Well, that guy was he was a offensive it's tackle. Easier to be a shut down corner That's if your right. other cornerback uh, is also shut down, and your defensive linemen yeah. are getting rushed on the quarterback, uh-huh. and you've got a great defensive coordinator. And so they come out of these systems. So my my favorite example is Matt Leinart was drafted right next to um, who's the Vanderbilt quarterback for years and years, um, Cutler. So Leiner and Cutler are drafted like 10 and 11 or something. And one went to USC surrounded by the best talent. And they were at the heyday yeah. of USC. And the other went to Vanderbilt. And God knows how many wins Cutler even had as a college quarterback. Yeah. They're drafted 10 and 11 or 11 and 12, something like that. Conditional on that observation, what's your prediction for who's going to have the better NFL career? And we you'd made have it, to say Leinart. Yeah, ha- no, you'd have to say Cutler because you know if they're if if an expect if they have the same expectation, they're drafted next to each other, so expectation in the market is the same. One came out of this environment surrounded by great I teammates. See. The other came out of an environment surrounded by lame teammates. You'd have well, to you'd say. Well, you'd think that the drafting mechanism would, would disassociate that, no? No, this is what the markets well, are imperfect, they guys. Do come that. on. This is the, the behavioral thing. Nobly is, imperfect. Oh, boy. The behavioral thing is. <laughs> That's if called expect, inefficiency. <laughs> if expectation is the same and they've got this bias, you would strongly put your chips on the player that came out of the worst context. And we did at that time. It was a real time mm-hmm. pick. And I mean, it's a nice one for us now because it breaks. It breaks so clearly in favor of Cutler. But all of this is to say that that it it depends on what your measure of NFL success is. Is it making the well, NFL? I'm, I'm, I'm only, talk, I'm only talking about making in the NFL. Making the NFL. Making the NFL. Oh, oh, that's well, performance there. And there's going to be Just a little bit of a bias. Well, then, yeah, of course the top teams are going to look great because you're going to give – that pick from a top team more chances. So you like, mean what, just making an NFL team? Making an NFL team? Making an NFL team. So all I'm doing is, because that's the crudest thing. Remember, it's being really hard to no, do. No, he doesn't mean being drafted. You mean making the 53-man roster or, ba- or being, being drafted? Basically being drafted, being drafted, which is very uh, top okay. seven, right? So being drafted. And that generally means you make it. Not always, obviously. But um, it's actually a very hard problem because I don't have mountains of data. You, have, you yeah. only have about say, eight years of data of high school rankings. And there's many, many, many college teams. So what's interesting about it from a statistical perspective is if you do sort of head-to-head analysis, you can actually find what you would measure as statistically significant. Once you start throwing in all the teams and thinking about all the comparisons you could make, then multiple comparisons just crushes you, and it's very hard to find anything that's substantially ahead. But team, there is but one. There is one team that really rises. I above have my them guess, all. but let's hear it. I was going to guess Michigan. Because Michigan Why? sends a lot of linemen to the NFL, a huge number. Is that true, or is that just a stereotype? <laughs> they're famous. I'm just to remember they they're also famous, come in. They're they famous. Come in really their famous ranked. quarterbacks are usually very low uh, drafted. <laughs> <laughs> but he was drafted. <laughs> so what's interesting about it is you have to. It's after controlling right, what's your for, guess? The, don't for the. Don't, well, I'm not going to tell you the answer. Why don't you guys guess? But you have to remember you're controlling for the quality of the players already. So Alabama for sure has way more top hundred players than other teams, but they get discounted for that because. We expect them to do well. So we're looking at the after conditional on what they've drafted and what they've recruited, what's the extra bump So I think the credentialing mechanism we talked about is mostly going to get conditioned out by the quality of the players, mostly. Yes. Um, so I think we're talking about the player development piece versus this behavioral bias. 
Ohio State? No, somebody in the big uh, – That's those are my two guesses. But I for get two. just getting drafted. Just getting drafted. Yeah, yeah. yeah. when it was drafted, I mean, like, everybody – go I'll give you a hint. There's only one team that stood out enough to actually be noticed. And it's not that there was a difference. I mean, there was big difference that you'd consider important, I think the only, but they weren't statistically significant. Okay, I think, you're, I think you have to get it from player development. I think you have to get you – you're talking about a staff that, that identifies players – that are going to perform better over their over their college career, right? It would have to. Then be. that's going that's necessarily what's going to go on. So, I mean, the famous example in 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 college sports fans, in college football fans' eyes, is um, probably Kansas State mm. because they, they I don't think they had that one coach or whatever. I'll, I'll give you a hint that that would probably be hard because there's not enough of them to. To uh, rise statistically, to rise above. statistically above the noise. It's a, that, so that's I'm giving you a hint. Now, by the way, I'm not telling you that these are. This I is right. To, I want or you wrong. to use better statistics. I want you to worry less about statistical significance. I want you to be Bayesian or something because that can't. I was Bayesian. I was Bayesian. Oh no, whole. I wasn't Bayesian subjectively. I was Bayesian in in statistical sense. In other but, words, but, I shrunk but, hard to, to yeah, the, but to the now that, that's. I mean, come on. I want you're 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 a professional statistician <laughs> Indeed. and a sports <laughs> and a sports analyst. You can't dismiss the bottom two thirds or three quarters of D one. Teams because they have too small a sample. That's that's not a satisfying answer. You, no, it's, well, a, it's a satisfying actually, answer to say there's not enough evidence to suggest uh, know, that but they're we're, better. But, but this is we're not doing an I'm, academic I, paper I, today. I, I, I we're will talking have about a chance to take a look at look at the actual numbers and how many they have. But uh, I think you know you really have to recognize the backdrop is really noisy. And okay, so who is it? It's Clemson. That's shocking. Is it? Well, I don't know. Is it just a, is it a dynamic where for a while they weren't any good, and then all of a sudden they're great? It's the last, so that, it's that the last uh, eight nine years. Uh, I don't have any data before that. It's an interesting. It's, it is yeah, an interesting hypothesis that yeah. the people they drafted ten years ago when they weren't particularly good when they started, and then they yeah, kind of. The I mean, how long has Dabo Sweeney been there? I don't know. I don't know about you know a little less than that time, but about that time. Yeah, it's, I think the more interesting outcome would be NFL success. In like say it's the first four years yeah. or something like that, right? You'd, because you'd, you'd like to see that. That's more about because draft. I mean, you know, just sort of take like uh, kind of kind of just marginalize over drafting because you know we already know that that is such. What's a, neat kinda, actually about the analysis you did, Adi, regardless of whether the outcome variable is the one we might like or not, is this is actually the kind of analysis. I I don't mean this in a negative way. I mean in a positive way. This is a hammer you can hammer onto a lot of different problems. In other words, the structure of the problem you've set up. Like I could look at something like um, how many you know, which NFL teams draft better than something else and you would have an expectation. Or you could, I'm just saying this idea of you're going to put in a bunch of control variables, things you can observe at the time and see who has an exceedance that's actually significant. I think it's a good hammer yeah, to but apply you have to, to recognize, lots of problems. Think about these are binomials, so right? We're looking at the number or the percentage and these are highly noisy numbers. Yeah. We, we spend any time in our life looking at percentages. It's very percentages are very no- normal. What's that? It's a very collinear regression right. too. I mean like it's you're basically, oh, who really recruits well and then mm-hmm. who does you're trying to measure some partial effect of a team beyond the recruiting when the when the teams are right. super well, highly correlated done, with the recruiting have you done the analysis where you've looked at partials of the data to see like shane's theory that some cl- people recruit well well imagine you only conditioned on high school statistics and did that's the analysis what, exactly. and then you did it high school and college statistics and looked at the results. I'm just wondering, as you add information, right. could you try to tease out, at, this is back to Cade's earlier point, at what point of the process is this exceedance happening? Right. And that would be interesting to me, where you kind of go the information from back far in time and start moving it forward and seeing what happens. But so, I want to get back to your Kansas point, and this is really... Tr- this Kansas is, State. Kansas State. This is very difficult from a statistical point of view, because if you go with some knowledge, 
that actually is the right way to approach it to, to almost clean the, the playing field out. You don't want to you want to muck up your works with with literally dozens of teams who you're potentially not really not interested in because it adds so much noise to the mm. to the to the analysis. And unless you come in with hard priors, I mean really hard priors, not objective Bayesian or flat pliers priors, which is what I used, but real hard priors, you really can't get over that. Well, it's a shame because the the, the greatest player developers. The champion, I mean, the, kind of the the, the 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 ones people sing songs about, are guys off the top tier because they have to be great player developers, or mm-hmm. or they have to be especially good player identifiers. Like Gundy somehow always has great offensive linemen. You know, he can't get a player who's offered by OU or Texas, and yet he has these great offensive linemen. He's identifying better, or he's developing better, or both. But it's kind of you kind of necessarily see that off of that top tier, and you're saying, well, you've got lower volume. I want to clean up just a few details. One, Cutler was 11 and 34 at Vanderbilt. Okay, so he was he was drafted next to a guy who probably lost five games in his NFL in his college career. Maybe five. And Leonard. Um, Dabo's been there ten. This is his 11th yeah. year. Started in 2008. And um, it, one observation about Shane's idea about looking at NFL performance: as soon as you go past draft, though, now. The performance is affected by who, what staff gets them, of where, course. where they land, yep, and so yep, you're adding yep. a different source of, yeah. of variance that yep. you might that's going to complicate that. It's also right. tougher because the high school level data is only is not that old, so you really can't get back that far. That's right. That's right. Yeah, so, you said nine years or so. Yeah. Though. Well, yeah. So. so this is Wharton Moneyball. We've got the whole crew in here this morning. You guys can join us if you'd like. One eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two. 7866. Hit us up on Twitter, too, at WMoneyBall. Guys, I thought we were going to talk Butler. I figured Butler was topic number one coming in today. You mean Jimmy Butler? Jimmy Butler. Yeah, Yeah, I actually very much would love to talk Butler. This is like one of the most, you know, eligible free agents over the last couple of years. He landed in our backyard this week. Well, yeah, he did. I've been waiting to hear. Well, so we say landed in our backyard. So let me just say, there's been a lot for him. (laughs) There's been a lot of articles written about this, not surprisingly. So let me say the good news and the bad news. Um, the good news is he's known as a very good defensive player. All the advanced metrics and stats have him ever a very good defensive player. Now let me say the bad news. The bad news is um, his scoring efficiency, given where he is on the floor and what kind of shots he takes, is much worse than Robert Covington or Dario Saric, who we gave up for him. Uh, two, the Sixers have a lack of three-point shooting of which Saric and Covington, you could argue, well, Reddick's the best three-point shooter on the team. But we got rid of our second and third. Third, you know what starting five in the NBA was the best starting five in the NBA by every advanced metric last year? Oh the my, Sixers really? with Saric and Covington. Oh my! When you look at any—they were better than the Warriors. The starting five of the Sixers was Simmons, <laughs> Embiid, Reddick, Covington, and Saric— were the best statistical starting five in the NBA last season. So now you've taken those two pieces out. So I'm not that excited about it in the modern NBA because Jimmy Butler, as every chart chart I've looked at has shown, he's a great long-range, mid-range, two-point shooter, which, as we know... Very inefficient. Very inefficient. So that's that's the concern. Even I know that. That's so, the concern. So you know, can I mean, three is more than two and a lot more. <laughs> three is fifty percent more than two is the best insight ever made. Can I ask you? We, we've been talking about basketball for years. I don't typically hear the name Jimmy Butler as a top X player. What is your X on that? Good question. He's definitely in my mind not a top ten NBA player. Well, that's but bad. I, I would put him what, in. I, that's just my opinion. Yeah, I, mean, I would put him in the next tier. What about two years ago? Has he come off of his peak a little? Well, bit? that was the other thing mm. I was going to talk about. Is that 
he almost seems, and, and actually, this is the beauty of advanced statistics now, they can actually look at the speed and the height at which he jumps now. It's incredible. He's almost 30 years old. This is not, I mean, you could call him mid-prime, maybe late-prime. He seems, back to Kay's point, he seems, at least all the advanced metrics have seemed to say, he's actually slowing down. I mean, he's actually slowing yeah. down. Well, well, you'd expect that. I mean, the, the peak of speed is about 24, 25. Well, now we're going to be able to, y'all, y'all do right. age curves all the time. We, we're going to yeah. be able to put, like, velocity on the age curves. I mean, like, right. literally. I actually mm-hmm. did one from, from MLB to figure out. Um, the speed, loss of speed. So I looked at, I and mean, it's totally correlated because it's a slice in time. And but you can we have the age information, so you can look at the age curve um, as a slice in time. So I'm not looking at an individual player over time. I didn't have that data, but I did have the a slice, and then you can just do a regression by age, and you can kind of see how fast they on slow. running other, speed on running speed because they oh, have a sprint speed on the on other stat thing, cast. The other thing you have to ask yourself, and people have looked at this also with Jimmy Butler, is. What fraction of the time, he, like, what's his, they have a statistic called ball dominance. And so he tends to be a ball dominant player. Well, now the problem is you have two other players on the team who also require the ball. Eric, One, I don't yeah. understand yeah. how this can happen. I mean, exactly. hey, this, is the, this is the analysis. This is what I've been hearing for the last couple of days. Both of the things you just said. And yet... They make this trade. Well, I don't understand why. And this so, is an analytics team. I mean, they're, no, they're, they used to be an analytics no, team. No, the, the, the Sixers? Yeah. I mean, they still right. have 11 like, guys sitting in that room working their asses off. <laughs> but does, how does it translate? Are they listened right, to? Yeah, how does are it they trans- listened to? Are they exactly. listened to? Yeah, exactly. Elton true. Brand, he went the to Duke. The Nationals have a lot of analysts too, right, Ari? <laughs> yeah. Are they listened to? Elton That's Brand true. went to Duke, but I, I mean, I don't know. You're I don't, right. I don't know him at all, but I'm, I'm going to guess he's not Sam Hinkie when it comes to using analytics. Yeah, it's a fair question because, again, um, nothing has changed, as Cade said, since the day before the trade and the day after the trade. This was data that was all known. Now, what you, the other thing you have to say to yourself is maybe, and this is what other people have said, this is a high-variance play. And what I mean by that is the Sixers believed they have a short-to-medium window to win the title. Maybe it's even tied to J.J. Reddick's. It's not Embiid and Simmons because they're 24, or 24 and 22 years old. And you know what? You're not going to win it with Sarge and Covington. You're just not. Therefore, why not go for a higher variance strategy? It's not necessarily great for the long run, but for the next two years, and Vegas would agree with this, by the way, the way the odds have shifted. Maybe this is a high variance strategy. Let's do it while we have this window. Mm -hmm. So that's the only statistical argument I can make. Here's another possibility is that they're going to make another move. Well, they are planning to make another move in the following sense. I know it sounds strange. They do have another roster spot. They do have the mid-cap exemption, which is $5.4 million. They're touting that they're going to bring in more shooters. There'll be empty you know, shooters that they can get. And so their view is, eh, we replace one three-point shooter, Covington, with another three-point shooter. Butler's a better defensive player than Covington, which the data suggests that's true. Sarich is having an awful year. So you could start constructing an argument where we can replace shooting. And, and can't, we, do, do you think it's reasonable to replace Covington just with play like they can just get a new player that has his abilities? I think three point wise, I think it would not be ho- if the person can get their shot off, as you know, is the challenge. But, yeah, because Covington can create his own shot. Yeah, yes, I think they could probably if the person's open, can they get a shooter that's equivalent to Covington when he is open, shoots as well as Covington when he is open? Yes, I think that they can get. So, by the way, Covington was all NBA defense last year. No, I know. I said Covington is a very good defensive I, player. And they, by the way, he wasn't drafted that way. They thought he was a bad defensive player. And he actually, if you actually look at Covington's game, and I've watched tons of Sixer games ever since he's been drafted, he takes greater pride on the defensive side of the court 
than the offensive side. Not that he doesn't like shooting. He loves shooting. But he's a, he loves playing defense. Well, Butler's mm-hmm. supposed to be good on defense as Butler's well. Butler's five, so five times all the NBA defensive would player. They, would they ever move fools? I mean, are they, might they move another one of their big pieces? Well, they're definitely not moving Simmons or Embiid. That's Fultz, for sure. This has got to be the worst time to try and move Fools, right? I mean, his Correct. market value has got to – could it get lower? I guess it could. He could get injured. He's 21. 20. 20. He's 20 years old. These are children. (laughs) Well, he just got drafted. Yeah, I know, but he should be playing in college right now is really what should be going on. Oh, yeah, Mr. Touting the college athletics over here. <laughs> well, he's a baby. I mean, but that, what's, what's, what's more important at the moment is that he hasn't performed the way that he was expected to perform. This right. is a yeah. Yeah, there's second, also, second I, pick in the draft. First. First. first, pick in the first. Draft. Remember, we traded up with the Mr. Green over here, the Celtics. <laughs> yeah. There. This was the Celtics. We gave they're, up they're, the they're unrestricted pick. Sacramento first-round pick and the number three pick to get Markel Fultz. Oh, and who did the, the Celtics get with that pick? What was his name? Oh, I don't even know. That was Jalen Brown. No, not yeah. Jalen Brown. Tatum. The, Tatum. Tatum. Jason Tatum and, well, was, the, and the unrestricted first-round pick from Sacramento step, this year for Markel Fultz. Yeah. And, and so Fultz was touted why? I mean, what were we expecting out of Fultz? Well, shooting? Because he's not yeah, shooting. No, the guy at Washington, he played at Washington, was a, I think, I may have the number up by 1%. He was a 43 to 44% three-point shooter. No, no, the guy was a deadly shooter in college, and he gets, he still, even today it's true. Anytime Markel Fultz wants to get to the rim, he gets to the rim. He's blazing fast. He can use both hands around the rim. He's six four with a six ten wingspan. So the guy's super athletic, but he shot forty three percent from three in college. So and what from, happened? He can't shoot anymore. That's my, my well, understanding. They're saying Is it psychological. This, yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. He put a, pulled a Chuck <laughs> Knobloch on us. All yeah. right. <laughs> Actually, you would have found it interesting. I was watching the Sixer game the other night against the Heat. I've never seen this in all my years of watching the NBA. He started double clutching at the free throw line, which means halfway through his free throw motion, he would stop. He went like this, stopped, and then shot the ball. And and I'm like, I've never seen that before. Like sometimes you can just throw up a brick, but I mean, we're talking about start the motion. He literally stopped for about a half a second, but not brought the back. It's like the motion's still going, and he stops. I've never seen that in all my years of right. watching a guy shoot free throws. Huh. It so is there's total, something... It, it, it is total knoblock territory. Yeah. That's, that's, exactly. that's when you said knoblock. Yeah, we've had Rick Ankeel on this show before. Yeah. Exactly. We, He's be, another It one. wouldn't be bad to have, have Ankeel back oh, and man. have him talk about what's going on with Markel Fultz. That's interesting. I mean, clearly we're in the world of sports psychology, and there are probably lots of folks who think they can fix him, but that's a hard fix. I mean, yeah. they move... Rick and kill from pitching to outfield in order to keep him in the game, right? Did Knobloch ever come back after he Never. quit being able to no, he was throw a, from second, was no. second base? There's no, no place to put him. I know, you can't throw from second base, <laughs> but you're I think, in trouble. I think it's Shane's tragic. point is the right one, which is there's no his trade value couldn't be lower at the moment for certainly someone that was a number one pick. Yeah. Um, although the only good part of the trade, my kids and I joked about this, the best part of the trade was dumping Jared Bayless's $9 million a year salary. So they were able to dump his salary off the books, which frees them up a bunch of cap space. All right. Anything going on with the with the winter meetings or around baseball? We know that... Well, there's um, like 100 free agents. Well, the, and no, one, no one knows if anybody wants them. Well, right. Farhan Zadi, our behavioral economist, former Moved GM, and the Dodgers moved yeah, upstate. That's exciting. He's now president. Of, president. He's, a, uh. he's really in charge with the Giants. And this guy, he you know, behavioral econ world loves him. He he was literally he is a PhD in behavioral economics out of Caltech. 
and um, supposed to be a fantastic guy. So this is a pretty big move, and to move to rivals like that is yeah. interesting. The Giants. No, I mean, have, I think it's it's going to be an interesting off season. I mean, the, the Giants factor because I, I, I think the this kind of shows that the Giants are looking to really you know kind of well, quickly right. Um, Accelerate on, on, on basically and, become you know well, Matt challenge Dats, the our Dodgers. producer Matt Dats has the surprising thing right here, right on our sheet in front of us. According to this, the on Bovada, the opening. You're not supposed us. to admit on the air we have notes. <laughs> All right, well we have notes. We <laughs> well, have notes. I have notes. You don't have notes. No, All right. no notes. Um, they have the Phillies being number one for getting Bryce Harper and Manny Machado. Well, okay. I mean, no, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I'm saying... How can they afford both? That's ridiculous. Oh, they can't well, afford both. They can't afford, afford both. They can't afford both. Well, can't. What does that mean? I, I mean, can. I have to tell can. you, yeah, of course Bryce, would be, a, Bryce would be a good fit for Phillies. I, I mean, I, again, we will see. I, well, I mean, the, the, the main dynamic is that we have these two amazing, very young... Stars and in, by the, in way, the game that are somehow free agents. They're non comparable in terms of the advanced stats. You know, by I the mean, way, it's it, it's an interesting kind of it's, it's an interesting kind of uh, I think free agent year because the, these top two free agents basically are very young. They're not the usual free agent age, and so that's why people are talking about Har- Harper and Machado potentially breaking records. Okay, as far as signings go, because yeah, they're twenty six years old. They're usually twenty nine. So, Adi, you said you thought Harper was an especially good fit. With yeah, the he's a lefty. I mean. Think what, about it. Go There's on. a no, short tell, porch tell out there it. in in, oh. in, uh, in Citizens Bank Park. Okay, yeah. so it's just how he fits the park. Yeah, and also, okay. I mean, he's 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 questionable on defense, and and this is something that's who that's is awkward. Harper. Harper, yeah. Which, yeah. Might, in other words, he sometimes shows flares of brilliance. Got a really strong arm. If he's questionable on defense, why are we talking about an NL team? Why are we talking about an NL team? That's yeah. a good question. Why um, wouldn't you? Why well, wouldn't no, no, he? No, no, no. I don't know. Hold on a second. Defense on an AL team. Let me see what I'm. Maybe clarify what I mean by by questionable. He's not bad on defense. Mm, we don't know whether he's, he's good well, or bad. He shows both. Brilliant. Okay. And so what I'm thinking the last is that couple seasons it's been pretty it's been consistently bad. But he doesn't belong in center field. But you put him out in right field, and Oof. I think that's even a good his right field numbers are terrible. The well, last couple seasons. That's right. But I mean, he's. I think he's. The only uh, thing I was going to come is an interesting article on five thirty eight that does a direct comparison of Machado and Harper. And Machado's advanced stats are far beyond Harper's, by the way. Just in case, you know, if one had to select mm-hmm. between the two, just based on their wins above replacement and other advanced stats, yeah. Machado is the winner in that horse. Well, he's, race I, I think he's playing in the uh, in the infield. I just That's think a huge Machado. That I, I think some of his postseason antics and stuff like that uh, turned people is, off. I don't know if it matters, but as well, a who fan, knows if it matters? As a fan, but, it definitely turned me off. Yeah, well, well, of course. Yeah. As a fan, you watch that guy and you're like, I want him but on my a, team. It's a shame because if, I remember I'm a, a good buddy, Joe. Simmons, who's an Orioles fan, turned us on to Machado when they yeah. called him up, you know, right. late in the yeah. year, years ago. And I've been such a fan because just to watch him play is so fantastic. But then, my gosh, this year, tell me, last question before we go to break: What consideration does Philadelphia get when it comes to these free agents' decisions? I mean, we think about them wanting to go to New York or wanting to go to L.A. Does anyone want to come to? If they want to come to Philadelphia, why do they want to come to Philadelphia? If they don't want to come, why don't they want to come? Cheese sticks. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think Philadelphia still, I mean, a, I'll, I'll make a couple arguments from Philadelphia besides the cheesesteaks. Um, basically, they start, they they are potentially in a pretty wide open division there. So, I mean, like, Philadelphia would not have to do much, I think, to improve their team where they would be contenders. Okay. You know, so, I mean, I, I think a free agent could talk to them that. And, I mean, honestly, if Philadelphia has the capability to pay 
Bryce Harper like three hundred fifty million. That's well, I think also Shane, Shane knows this. He's going to they, whoever pays him the most. They could afford both. The yeah. Phillies in the last five years, you remember there were years where the Phillies were up there with the Yankees and the Red Sox in terms of total payroll. Yeah. So the Phillies have shown the willingness. If I was a Machado or Harper, I'd say, okay, well, am I going to be getting thirty five million? The rest of the team thirty five million. Right. But that's not what's going to happen. Right. They can give him thirty five million and pay one hundred and forty million to the rest of the team. Right. That's what would to me would make Philadelphia attractive. Yeah. All right, wonderful. All right, fellas, that has been the first quarter of War. Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Broadcasting from the Sirius XM studio in Huntsman Hall, the Wharton School. Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew, my faculty colleagues, and Wharton Moneyball co-creators, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner. Shane Jensen. You guys can join us. Give us a ring, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six, Or hit us up on email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Or reach out on Twitter. Our handle on Twitter, at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We take your questions, claims, over-under suggestions up there. We are rolling into one of our guest segments for the day. We're delighted to welcome to the show. As far as I know, it's the first time visit not a first time visit first time for me to visit with him chris herring senior nba writer for espn and 538 we've been talking we always talk a lot of 538 we got to be paid commission by 538 we talk about him so much chris welcome to the show no i appreciate you having me thank you absolutely where are you calling in from this morning chicago chicago where we see that you are also an adjunct professor at northwestern what what kind of professoring do you do up there um so I teach at the grad school, and um, they initially brought me on to teach data and analytics, which mm-hmm. I feel like I'm probably not that qualified to teach because I, I don't particularly love math that much, and um, <laughs> don't think I'm that great at math. But, um, but I, you know, I just think I'm, I'm able to use numbers and know how to ask questions around the idea of numbers All right. uh, to improve my stories. And so I, I teach that, but I also teach a, a number of general journalism classes as well. Oh wow, that's a, that's a that's a that's a great combination. I mean, the uh, even for analysts, Chris. I mean, the, to go in and there and talk about not just like how you can run a better regression, but then how you can communicate it and what the stories are that come out of it. And that's critical for those analysts. I mean, that's a huge skill. Kudos for Northwestern to have you come in there and do that. So Northwestern no, has a, actually has a master's program in data science, I think, and, yeah. and one in the engineering school and one I think in the business school. Business but, this, involved. but you're teaching in the journalism school. <clears throat> Yeah, no, I okay. think the reason, I mean, J.A. Adande and I are friends, and uh, when he realized I was moving to Chicago, um, he he asked if I could come on and, and teach that. And so, um, to my knowledge, they didn't have anybody in the department that could teach it or that he really felt was qualified to teach it. So, well, we, why they're interested in having me there. I think it's, I mean, we've talked, We a couple of years ago, we had a, a guest on, Stephen Godfrey, he's a college football writer for SB Nation. We asked him, how, what can we do to as analysts? to kind of make headways with media because so much of the, in 538 is the exception, so much of the media doesn't do a good job talking about analytics. And coming out of that conversation was the idea that maybe we should have like a summer camp or something, have journalists to, down here, you know, talk about analytics for a while, try to incre- increase literacy, open the conversation, answer questions, that kind of thing. You're kind of taking the other the, the other approach. You're going into the J schools and talking about analytics. I think either thing would be hugely helpful. I mean, you guys do such a good job at 538. But we need to get more organizations doing a good job talking about analytics. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, I I think I'm I'm kind of in a weird spot because I 
I absolutely understand the importance of it. I mean, I think part of the reason that 538 brought me on um, is that, you know, I, I think they're trying to change the perception of some of the journalism that they do. They obviously have a good grasp on the numbers. Um, and, you know, I, I joke about it a little bit, but I, I'm also somewhat serious in the sense that I, I don't see myself as that great at numbers. Uh, you know, I, I kind of avoided math classes in college like the plague. I think I took um, <laughs> my first math class. I took a quantitative reasoning course, I think either my junior or senior year. And, you know, kind of, you know, I remember having a discussion with my with my academic advisor, like what's the fewest number of, of <laughs> math classes I can take and still kind of get by here. And she said, "There's you have to take one. And I was like, okay, I'll take one. And I'll wait until I'm basically graduated till I do it so that it doesn't ruin my GPA right out of the gate. Um, so the idea for me when I when I came on at 538 was that, uh, look, I love the work you guys do um, in, all, you know, in all your sections and stuff like that. But when it comes to sports, and I mean, I can give you one really great example. Um, we, we do such great we have such great ideas, but then it's like we don't cross the finish line with them. Uh, I think we had one. I can't remember the name of the player, but a story about a guy that I think four out of the last five seasons now, he's hit 247 exactly. And in the fifth season of that, those, you know, Chris Davis. that five season span, yeah, he hit 248. And so it's like he's literally like the most consistent hitter <laughs> in baseball history. But the fact that he did it again is ridiculous. Ridiculous, by the way. Oh, it's hilarious. <laughs> it, it tells you like how spot on the story was, but we didn't interview him for the story. And so, to me, you know, like not talking to him or you know hitting coach about what his approach is or how that happens, I just kind of feel like it, it's a great idea, and it doesn't change the fact that it's a great idea by not getting him in the story and his voice in the story. But like, why not get him in the story? And uh, so that's my approach is that I, I feel like I, I want to use numbers to figure out what to approach and to figure out what to look into and to figure out why the number looks that way. But then to answer that question by finding film and by talking to the players and by talking to the opposing players and the opposing coaches to figure out why stuff happens the way it does. And I feel like the numbers are a part of that, but I think they're just a part of it. And so that's kind of what I would try to use. And when I'm teaching in my journalism classes to kind of, you know, to get other people to, to look at that approach, because I do feel like part so, of it is that the, the industry is becoming so quick to embrace the numbers now and all these different sports that I feel like you're going to need to understand more than the numbers to really become an expert in some of this stuff. Chris, what you're talking about is a process. It's not just about writing an article. It's about decision-making in organizations in general. You're, you're combining data with non-quantitative sources of information. And, and you just described a process where, you use data kind of initially to see some interesting angles or su- or suggest some interesting possibilities, and then you go in and add these other sources of data, which is fantastic. And other organizations need to do it. Does it does it often go, does it ever go in the other direction as well though, where you end up with a question that's not yet informed by data, and you and you go to your analyst and say, "Hey, here's this hypothesis, or here's this idea, or is there any chance that the data support this?" In, in a perfect world, you see dynamics in both directions. Oh, of course there are. I mean, I, I think. You know, you'd be stupid if you you were to just kind of assume or rely on the fact that someone's been good their whole career and then they start falling off really horribly in one or two metrics that are really important. So, I mean, I think, um, you know, and I don't think you only need this, Carmelo Anthony, for instance, but, like, you know, you look at his numbers. I, I, I pointed this out before the season that he was still – I think he actually was hitting a higher percentage – 
of contested mid-range twos last season um, than he was like five years ago. And so he's still one of the league's best players and hitting tough shots. But that's really not a metric that you would want to point to and say like, right. oh, this is why we need this guy on our team. Like the, the whole point of basketball right now is to take the least contested shot, to take the most open shot that you can <laughs> right. with certain players, especially the Rockets who – you know, are going to be passing the ball to corner shooters and the guys that aren't being guarded as Chris Paul and James Harden are being doubled up or, you know, seeing one-on-one coverage. And so I kind of pointed that out, that he's really great at that still, um, but at the same time that he's great at something that, you know, has kind of become diminished in terms of its importance. Right. And so so that's the thing is that the game has changed a lot and, you know, whether or not Carmelo Anthony is good or, or, or not anymore, you know, I think is partly dictated by the fact that we value different things now. And so, you know, you, you need to be careful to not really rely too heavily on any one thing, on the eye test, on, um, on the statistics what players as well, are yeah. telling you, and, and, and obviously the numbers as well. You don't want to rely too heavily on any one of the three, but that's why I try to use all three of them, just because I think it helps kind of keep you honest and balance things out a little bit. So one of the things that, that I think is really interesting about this journalism, the, both the stories you've told, is that... If you, as a as a consumer of journal of statistical journalism and looking at it historically, a lot of times a journalist will see a statistical event and try to make more of it than it really is, and 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 we're getting kind of both sides. I think the Chris Davis stories, and one of the reasons why they didn't talk to Chris Davis in that example, I thought it was tongue in cheek. I mean, if you you if you read it, you recognize from a statistical point of view that someone would do this over the course of major leagues history is actually quite likely, and the fact that he had done it was just really almost a curiosity, almost like a astrology almost like a crazy sure. uh, occurrence. It's, it's also not great performance, right? It's no, correct. it wasn't great. It's 247. <laughs> and it was, if you read the article, it just seemed insane. It's and consistently was, not great <laughs> performance, Everyone kind of, was kind of like laughing about it. And that's why when he actually went and did it again this year, it was it really pointed to this idea that maybe he actually is genuinely this consistent. And now you want to go and talk to him. And, and I think what this kind of reveals is the tension between looking at all the data, finding all anomalies, something kind of runs in one direction. Do you want to tell a story around that? Or you you just want to say that that's just chance variation, and this is where where uh, the rubber meets the road when it comes to statistics versus you know storytelling, and that's what journalism is. And how do you how do you know what's real and what's and what's worth pursuing, and what's just chance variation? And both these stories um, kind of elucidate both sides of that. Yeah, no, I, I mean you're right, and sometimes I mean I've been guilty of this before. I don't know if guilty is the right word, um, where I. I rush to do something or I, I kind of speed up my process to get something done because I have a very firm sense that the numbers aren't going to hold the way they are. So I, I think the example that I would use from last year, um, you know, I try to tackle fun stories. And so I realized really quickly that um, Yusuf Nurkic from the Blazers was getting hit in the face like every game I watched of the Blazers. And um, he, you know, he would just kind of be playing defense and he'd just get drilled in the nose. And, you know, two games later, the same thing would happen. And then I I did a quick search on Twitter to try to figure out every time he'd been hit in the face. And I came back with like nine examples from the last season or season and a half. Um, and so I was trying to figure out, like, how can I quantify this and try to compare it to how often other guys get hit? Um, and so, you know, I thought about it for like weeks. And then I was like, you know what? What if, because most of those plays drew flagrant fouls. And I was like, what if I just try to look at which players have shot the most flagrant free throws? Um, and then, you know, if we try to take that as a percentage of the, the league's total, 
kind of the guy that's taken the greatest share of flagrant free throws. And maybe that's a way to kind of get at who, who takes the most punishment. Um, and so as I did it, he was getting like 9% of the league's flagrant fouls or drawing 9% of the wow. flagrant fouls, Jeez. which was the highest we've seen really in like the last 20 years that could be tracked. Now, right beneath him, though, the next five players, you know, on a season-long scale that were getting the highest percentage of flagrant foul calls were Blake Griffin. And so when I wrote the story and we included the table, a lot of people looked at that and they said, why wouldn't you have done the story on Blake Griffin, who clearly, you know, whereas Nurkic might be like a brief temporary outlier, um, Blake gets hit all the time and he literally is two through seven on that list. Yeah. Like, why would you, why would you? So, but the thing was, in my mind, the reason that I chose Nurkic, one, Blake was hurt all of last, you know, for a, a chunk of last year. Um, and also Nurkic had been getting hit, hit in the face a lot. And that was what prompted me to look into it was the fact that I noticed that he'd been getting hit a lot and the numbers were still valid there. But again, if you're looking at it over a long period of time, Blake would probably be the, the person that makes more sense. I chose Nurkic also because he was getting hit on defense, whereas Blake is a really aggressive offensive right. player. We know why he gets hit. Right. So, I mean, there were still reasons that I thought were interesting. I did the reporting around it. I talked to Nurkic. But, yeah, I mean, I tackled that story with the timing that I did because that was kind of a, a momentary, oh, this is really interesting. Yep. But, um, but you know, you can obviously do the tongue-in-cheek stories, too, and I can think of several examples where that works really well. Talking to Chris Herring. Chris is senior NBA writer for ESPN and 538. He's also an adjunct professor at the J School in Northwestern. Former Knicks beat writer. Glad he escaped that mess. Eric Bradlow. Yeah, Chris, this is Eric Bradlow. Um, interesting. I wanted to say one quick comment, and then I wanted to ask you a question about the Butler sure. trade, since I know you've written on it a lot, and we were talking about it a little bit. It's interesting. I interpreted your uh, Carmelo Anthony, since I grew up a Knicks fan, as entirely different. I'm like, he only can get contested shots right now. But let's move on to Jimmy Butler hmm. for a second. Um what did you think about the Jimmy Butler trade, and how did you perceive it as someone that kind of works in this area all the time? Because, you know, there's been lots of debates about whether this was a good trade for the Sixers, given the player efficiency ratings of Sarich and Covington and who they gave up. I mean, I, I think I kind of have mixed feelings on it. I, I don't think uh, – I don't necessarily think Philly shot themselves in the foot um, if this doesn't work, because I do think that they're kind of ways out of it. But they did give up – a decent amount of talent here. I mean, I, I think that the one good thing for them is that Covington, um, the level of defense that he plays, Butler, you know, if he's not as good as Covington, he's very close on defense. And I think he obviously, Butler gives you a lot more one-on-one offense than either one of those two guys ever were going to be able to give you. Uh, you know, he gives you a legitimate top 20. I feel like at the lowest, maybe you call him a top 25 player in the league. And generally speaking, that's what you need to make a run and you know you, you need three guys kind of at that level um to normally give you at least a shot either that or kind of two top 10 two top 15 guys to give you a shot at, at winning a title and so uh, when you look around the eastern conference i you know i think that they put themselves firmly in that conversation uh they haven't looked great so far this year uh, you got to look at where they are efficiency wise on either side of the ball um i think that their depth is an area that was kind of a concern already. And so you kind of made a two-for-one trade here to try to get the top end of your roster better. Um, I have real questions as to kind of what it means for Fultz, um, and I think a lot of other people do too. I'm not surprised that a lot of other people have that question as well. 
but it does kind of tell you that they're they're going for it in a way where faults cannot be your first concern anymore. Um, yeah, also, explain to me the, the, the language that's coming out about um, Fultz not starting. Last time I checked, I go to ev- almost every Sixer game, Covington and Sarge were both starters, so they're out. Um, you're actually injecting, obviously, Butler's going to start. Why can't Fultz start, too? You have my, a six foot ten Ben Simmons. I mean, Ben Simmons can play any position on the. I understand he plays point guard. Why can't Fultz sure. start with Butler? Why can't it be you know uh, obviously Embiid at center? You can have Butler starting. You can have Fultz starting. Simmons starting. Why can't they both start? The reason I would say that I mean they can. It's not to say they can't, but the reason I wouldn't want them to is someone who is looking at the future to some extent. And I get that now they have a very a much more win now focus than they did. Uh, two, three days ago. Um, I don't love the idea of Fultz starting just because his development all of a sudden, if, if you want him to kind of, I mean, if we're assuming that he's not going to be a great shooter, which at this point, that's a very murky question. And I think you have to lean more toward the idea that no, he's not going to learn how to in short order. Um, when is he going to get opportunities to handle the ball is kind of the question. And so if you're moving Simmons and you're kind of assuming that you're going to play Simmons out of the post way more then maybe he does get it more uh bolt i mean um but if he's not or you know you would be taking someone that basically i think uh either led or was second in the nba last year in touches or touches per game simmons um to now having him handle the ball less because of butler and then having him handle the ball way less because of both butler and fultz there and that's a pretty massive shift and you shouldn't really want to take the ball out of ben simmons's hands because of how good he is and, you know, the pressure that he can put on a defense, um, the fact that you have to have multiple guys back to kind of guard against him because of how physical and strong he is, and the fact that, you know, you basically have to stick him in the post um, if he's not handling the ball because he can't shoot either. And so all of a sudden, <laughs> right. I mean, if you had to pick who you've got in the post, it's definitely Embiid, who's been great this season, who's been a lot better at controlling the ball, um, he used to turn the ball over at the highest rate in the league when he was doubled. That's not necessarily the case anymore. He's got better vision. He knows where the doubles are coming from a little bit better with the seasoning that he's gotten. Uh, so that's kind of the question. Is that you you kind of have a guy at every spot already where you would want to plug somebody else. And so if you wanted to put Simmons in the post more, okay, that's fine, but it collapses your deep, your offense even more into a smaller space, and Embiid uses that space. You want to put Fultz at point guard, uh, okay, that's fine, but like Simmons would ideally probably be that guy. Butler, to some extent, kind of likes to be that guy too, and was Minnesota's best passer. Um, and so it, it's just it, it's not a perfect fit. I, I would want to throw in more shooting into that lineup, and so Shamit, I think, could kind of fit that. I think obviously Reddick has been playing very, very well, and I think he's the most natural guy to throw in there with them. And I would love to have Fultz kind of be the guy that can. To me, this is the approach that I would take with a lot of different point guards in the league right now that have a lot of defense but can't do that much on offense or aren't consistent with it. I've said this about Frank Nilakina. Just kind of let him go out there, and as long as he's playing as hard as he can, um, especially on defense, then just let him kind of have free reign of what he's doing. If, if he looks bad, he looks bad. You can't quite do that now in a win-now win situation with Philly uh, and Fultz, but I would rather him kind of make his mistakes and kind of just have the freedom to do what he's doing, handling the ball a lot, than putting him out there with the first unit where guys, especially Jimmy Butler, who terrifies me from the standpoint of like young players and working with young players, I would rather have Fultz out there kind of letting him make his mistakes with the second unit, 
and running the second unit as opposed to putting them out there with the first unit that doesn't have the space that it needs to really uh, thrive. Hey, Chris, we're down to just about 30 seconds or so. We've been talking about the Sixers, other very interesting teams in the East, Raptors, Bucks, Celtics on the other end, lots of interesting stories. Can you give us in just a few seconds how you think the East is going to play out this year? It's hard to not really love Toronto. I mean, I'm sure Boston will figure it out at some point, but they've got so many guys on that team, and the shot selection has not always been great from Tatum. You've got other guys, too, that you know have not played well. Rozier has looked bad to start this year. Uh, and maybe it's just rhythm and, and roll, but Toronto looks so good on both sides of the ball. I know they had a, a pretty tough loss a couple nights ago, but I've, I've seen them a few times in person. Pascal Siakam, you know, people don't know who he is now. We'll definitely know, you know, later on this year, especially in the playoffs, if he's playing this well. Uh, and Kawhi is kind of taking them to a new level. Lowry looks great. A new system kind of in place with Nick Nurse to some extent. So I really like Toronto. Um, you know, I think the Bucks will be interesting too, but I really like Toronto. Got it. Appreciate it. All right, Chris, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for all the insight on the NBA. We wish you the best with the work. Thank you so much. That was Chris Herring, senior NBA writer for ESPN 538. You can follow him. He's a great follow on Twitter. His handle, at Herring underscore NBA, at Herring underscore NBA. Herring is spelled H-E-R-R-I-N-G. He is uh, adjunct prof at Northwestern, also teaching a little journalism and analytics, former beat writer with Knicks on the Wall Street Journal um, outlet. So this has been one half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a second half to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Kate Massey hosting this morning with my buddies Shane Jensen and Eric Bradlow. Audie Weiner just stepped out and into the classroom. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You can join us, 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866, or email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. We have a lot of email questions this week. We're going to try to get to at least one. We need to honor it, and we need to keep working through them, but lots of interesting questions from folks via email. You can also hit us up on Twitter. Handle up there is at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall. Send us questions there. Send us over-under suggestions for the last segment of the show. We are just off the phone with one of our guests, Chris Herring, talking NBA mostly and data journalism. In our second guest segment, we're delighted to welcome to the show Robert Mays. Robert is a staff writer at The Ringer. He covers the NFL. He was with he was at Grantland, kind of the previous instantiation of The Ringer. You can follow him on Twitter, at Robert Mays. That's an easy Twitter handle for you, at Robert Mays. Robert, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Glad to have you. Where are you calling in from this morning? Chicago. With your, Back at home. That's that's great. We had Chris Herring was uh, just calling in from Chicago as well. That's your home, you said? You're from Chicago area? Uh, from Chicago originally. Came back here. Oh, Robert, we just cut cut you off a little bit. You're, you're there. Tell us where you what you did. Like, What's your path from growing up in Chicago to working there now for The Ringer? I went to journalism school. I went to the University of Missouri. And then out of Mizzou, I went got an internship in Boston. That's how Bill stumbled upon me. And then... I went out to L.A. to work for Grantland, so I was out there for four and a half years, and then I just felt like it was time to come home. So I came back in 2015 and started working for The Ringer as soon as it launched, and uh, it brings us to right now. That's great. So, it, you know, I, I'm not all following all the ins and outs of it, but it kind of feels, I see The Ringer stuff 
more and more it feels like and i've got i've got such a positive association with it i am very prone to click whenever i see something interesting and then i see that it's with the ringer how does it feel like you guys are doing over there i feel like we've hit a really nice stride i mean it people remember grantland and i think they remember the end of grantland and it's like they remember the beginning <laughs> and kind of how far it had to come and right. how long it took to really get us where we wanted to be and now we're in year three and we're chugging along in year three and i think that you know, everyone's pretty happy with how it's going. Mm-hmm. So how, how many people are covering the NFL there? Uh, two, uh, three full-time, me, Kevin Clark, and Danny Kelly. And then, you know, we've got some people that have picked up some stuff. Like Danny Heifetz does some work for us on the NFL. So I, I'd say, you know, 3.75 at this point. Mm-hmm. What 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 has your eye the most in the NFL this season? As a, I'm mostly a college football guy. I'm a Texas guy. I'm a college football guy. I'm, and Eric's raised his eyebrows. No, but you're sitting here with a bunch of we're we're in the NFL I right know, here. This is this is what I'm saying. Like tech, college has been unusually boring this year. And the NFL. I mean, we're going to talk the slate here and, and at the end of the hour. And it's a great slate. And it it feels to me like even as a college guy, this is a year that the NFL is a little more interesting than the than the college side. And one of the reasons is we have some new teams at the top. I mean, we mm-hmm. didn't know that no one really thought the Rams and Saints were going to be the best two teams in the league. So I'm curious, in this interesting a season, what, what lines are most interesting to you, a guy who follows it full-time? I mean, what's been most interesting to me all year is just the way the sport has changed kind of on the fly. I mean, you have offensive innovation coming along at a rate that it hasn't happened in the league in so long. I mean, it felt like the NFL was just mired in this stagnant offensive style of football where mm-hmm. you know, these 15 word play calls were doing the same thing. And then I think all at once you've had these teams kind of embrace a lot of college concepts, a lot of new stuff that we just didn't see in the league very often. And I mean, we're going to crush the point score record in the NFL, just mm-hmm. absolutely destroy it. And you have how many team quarterbacks can we throw for 30 touchdowns? It's a mind-boggling number. Mm-hmm. And do you, do you watch that week in and week out has been excellent. Uh, do you think, and, and you're sort of hypothesizing that most of the, that is offensive scheme innovation as opposed to just obviously a lot of the kind of recent rule changes in the NFL is trying to inhibit defense, essentially. I mean, in, 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 you know, safety is the actual objective, but in, inhibiting defense is the actual result. I think it's a combination of the two. I mean, the fact that the middle of the field is now kind of just an open area that you can attack at will. I think a lot of the smart teams have done that, but they've had to develop schemes and offensive approaches to be able to do that, and they have. So I think it's the rules allowing teams to move more freely, and I think it's the smart coaches understanding the best ways to do that. Do do you think it's going to – will there be any response to in sports in general over the last hundred years we see these kind of – flows back and forth will there be rule changes that kind of put defense back on more even footing i mean as a fan the you know i watched this i've watched the ravens a few times this season where you just can't get the defense off the field i mean the Bengals just go down looking like the best thing ever in the first round the first time they played the steelers two weeks ago you couldn't get off the field against these teams it looks like a big 12 football game so are, will exactly the, what it looks like will the nfl shift anything or they like it I think that they like it. I mean, right now, I mean, you look at the ratings and what's happening. People are super interested in the sport. So, wow. I don't think the league has any onus to put in rules that allow defenses to come back. Okay. Now we'll see what sort of approach and what sort of answer defenses have, and what sort of approach and answer teams have. So maybe you assemble your defense a little bit differently. And we've seen linebackers get much, much smaller, and maybe that goes to a further extreme where you have guys. 
like Derwin James, who weighs 215 pounds, playing more linebacker for you right. than anything else. Right. There are certain coverages that may you know come into vogue a little bit more. And then if that does happen, do offenses go back the other way? That's exactly or what happens. Teams get bigger and run the ball. I think it all is all cyclical in a certain way, but I think for at least right now, you're going to see this version of the game for a few years. Robert, that's 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 what you would predict. If college is where they're learning these things from, then college would be about a half a cycle at least ahead of them. And what the, the great teams down there are the teams who bring some of these kind of spread concepts, but then they have a strong running game to go with it. I mean, that's West Virginia for years now. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the Rams, and we talk about the spread concepts a lot, and it, that seems to be what's happened in the NFL. I mean, there's so much shotgun it dominates, but then you look at the Rams who go back the other way. I mean, two-thirds of their plays are under center, which is very counterintuitive to a lot of the conventional wisdom that's existed in the league. So uh, I feel like there are some teams that are already maybe half a cycle ahead. Mm-hmm. So- teams like New England, who use 21 personnel and two backs on you know, the second-highest second percentage of their plays, San Francisco being number one. And you know, I think those are two teams that have embraced a lot of offensive innovation, even if it's not necessarily with the type of shotgun spread concepts that you're seeing in Kansas City. So... It's not as if it's one just approach that's allowed these teams to, to be successful. I think it's about understanding how you can fold these concepts into who you are. So the Rams, for example, are under center on the vast majority of their plays, but they've run the most jet sweeps in the league by twofold. You know, they're using that jet motion and jet concept in, at higher clips than anybody, and it's I think twice as much at least. So it's about just understanding which of these spread concepts fit into who we are as an NFL offense. So I think that's why the innovation is going to come at a little bit of a different pace and it's going to look a little bit different. So, Robert, this is Eric Bradlow. As much as there's been, I think it's been a great NFL season, last weekend summarized a lot for me about how much variability there is. And I just love your oh thoughts God, on this. Bizarre. So, for example, the Titans won big against the Patriots. The Browns won big against the Falcons. The Steelers won big against the Panthers. The Cowboys beat the Eagles. In other words, they beat them by seven, but there was a seven-point game the other way. So I just noticed like there was these massive number of games that were 14-plus or more opposite of what the spread said. Anything, anything you were thinking of when you're seeing these kind of massive swings in games? I feel like there are certain things you can trace with all of those, and there's no one unifying variable. You know, with Tennessee... You just have this really impressive defensive front, and you have a coordinator and a defense that understand what the offense wants to do. I mean, it comes from that same tree. And you saw the Patriots have a problem with Matt Patricia as well when they played Detroit. I think that there's a familiarity there that does end up mattering. And I think any team that has really good talent up front can beat a team that's better than them, just because that, to me, is, is an equalizer. And the Titans 100% have that. Their defense has been underrated. Atlanta's had struggles on the road. You know, they managed to overcome that against Washington. But you look back at the other games they played this season, it was really against Pittsburgh. Cleveland does have some defensive talent. I mean, they've really been struggling for most of the year. You know, they've got guys on their defense that can swing a game for you. And there's highly drafted talent on the offense in both Cleveland and Tennessee. You know, Baker Mayfield's had a really rough season at times. He was the number one overall pick. Corey Davis hasn't had the career he's wanted so far, but he was a top five pick at wide receiver. And those two guys were the best players on their respective offenses in upset. So, Robert, to follow up with that, which of those four teams that we mentioned that lost, which were you know the Patriots, the Falcons, the Panthers, and the Eagles, have you kind of downgraded the most? I understand it's one game, but are any of them that you've kind of downgraded more because of the performance the last week? 
I would say it's probably the Falcons in the sense of can they have make a possible playoff run just because it's getting to be a really uphill battle for them now. For Philly, it's one of those things where you look at the division and you're like, oh, well, they can still do this. Because I don't think Washington's a very good team, and they have uh, and they have both games left against the Redskins and as I, well. I, I was just at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers game hosting the Redskins, and let me tell you, the Redskins are not a good team. No, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I mean, even when they win these games it's in the ugliest fashion possible, and in this era where you have so many teams that can score thirty-five at will, I just don't think that's conducive to long-term success. So, of all those teams, I just think that the Falcons are. They have the hardest road to the playoffs. I mean, that defense for Atlanta, it's, it's been a disaster all year. I know they get Deion Jones back, but it just feels like in the NFC, even in a watered-down NFC, that is worse than what we thought it was going to be. I still think that's a long way to go. So we're talking to Robert Mays. Robert is staff writer at The Ringer. He covers the NFL. He previously did that at Grantland. He's calling us from Chicago. You talked about the innovation you're seeing in the NFL as the single biggest story in the 2018 season. You've written about the coaching trees in the NFL. I'd love to hear you kind of re- re- recapitulate that 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 column. But is there a connection? Because we see some of these trees are much more, it seems to me, open to this innovation than others. And what is the relation between what you're seeing and these trees? Oh, I think it absolutely is related. I mean, you look at the teams that have had the biggest jumps of offensive success from what they were last season. I mean, Minnesota is looks very good offensively when their offensive line can do anything. And that's Johnny Filippo, who came from Doug Peterson's offense last year, who came from Andy Reid. You have <laughs> the Bears are one of the best seven or eight offenses in the NFL by a lot of advanced numbers, and their quarterback isn't there. He's not very good. And that's a lot <laughs> of them just putting their players in excellent positions to succeed, and that's Matt Nagy, who came from Andy Reid. You look at what's happening in Indianapolis right now. I mean, Andy, Andrew Luck's comp- completing 66% of his passes, the highest mark of his career by far. He's on pace to throw 40 touchdown passes. There are tight ends. They're scoring two touchdowns a game, it seems. That's Frank Reich who came from Doug Peterson, who, again, came from Andy Reid. So you can make a through line to a lot of these teams. Even a team like San Francisco, who isn't winning a lot of games, but has had offensive success with Nick Mullins and C.J. Beathard, and that's Kyle Shanahan, and where did Sean McVay come from? That Kyle Shanahan gave Sean McVay one of his first jobs in the league. So a lot of these things are connected, and I think that as these groups have success, you're going to see more and more teams trying to dip into those pools and find some way to replicate it even if it's not you know 100 percent. can you draw through lines through <clears throat> staffs who are not being innovative kind of the the previous generation where you used to think this is this really important tree in the nfl that's kind of getting left behind uh, i mean, think that what, what the moment that the Seahawks hired brian schottenheimer i wasn't very excited about it right. but then you go back the other way and it's amazing how these guys can kind of reinvent themselves and when the panthers hired north turner i just kind of chuckled i said really like, we're, we're going to do this Every offensive mind that's been hired recently that's been successful has been these 30-something guys who are getting their first chances or guys that are exciting, innovative minds. North Turner is 66, and in reality, they've done a really good job of bringing new ideas to the league. So I think it's it's kind of hard to do it the other way just because you can change the other way. Well, what would you... you can absolutely see what's going on in the league and say, what can I implement that what sort of elements do I think are interesting here and that's why I think the North Turner's been in my opinion and play calling wise the coolest story in the league this year but Robert that's that's fascinating because 
Football coaches aren't known for being open-minded and changing themselves, reinventing themselves. I mean, you're, you're saying it's possible, for sure it's possible, but it seems to me it's relatively unlikely. I mean, you know, and I'm just going to throw an anecdote in the other direction, but Les Miles you know, goes to the grave almost with just unwillingness, but it's, he's not an exception in that way. He's almost, the, he's almost the paradigm of what a college football coach does. So maybe is it the case that a guy who can survive as long as North Turner has survived at the very highest levels of, co- of football coaching kind of has to be a guy who can adapt? Yes, I 100% agree with that. And, and I think that it's, you're seeing that around the league with the teams that have not played up to what we thought they could be. I mean, you watch Dallas's offense for the most part, and you just think, why is this? Why are they playing like this? Right. And the same goes with Green Bay, and it's it's not as if there's a, a tree or two that I think has really struggled to innovate just by virtue of the coaches they've been around. It's certain coaches that have been in the league for a very long time. I mean, you think about how long Scott Linehan has been a play caller, how long he's had success in the league. It's been forever. And the same goes for Mike McCarthy. I mean, he's been there for Aaron Rodgers' entire tenure. So these coaches that end up getting into one spot and being there for a long time, I feel like that can lead to stagnation. And, yeah. and that's what you're seeing with North Turner. He was out of the league for a year before coming to Carolina. He has been gifted this very unique group of skill position players and a, a very unique quarterback. I mean, that's not the type of players that North Turner ever played with before. Right. You think about where he comes from. It's a down the field, outside the numbers, Eric Coriel system that he ran pretty much all the way through his time in San Diego. And then he comes here, and it's so much horizontal. Getting his guys moving right to left, a lot of motion, <laughs> right. reverses, screen passes. It's almost the exact opposite of the history where he came from as an NFL coach. And I just think that's fascinating. Well, one of the things I'm hearing you say is that it's easier to change when you when the scenario, when the situation changes. And you can't expect a guy who's had you know Aaron Rodgers as his quarterback for the last 10 years or whatever it is to all of a sudden change his style. But if you give a North Turner a completely different situation, or I don't know, is, is it relevant to say the same about Andy Reid? I mean, he's doing this in Kansas City. He's not doing it in Philadelphia. So it may be that these guys, to to fill, facilitate that kind of open-mindedness and change, they really need a change of situation. Yes, and, and I feel like that's really important. And with Andy, it wasn't necessarily the personnel changes. Obviously, his personnel changed when he got to Kansas City. You get a Tyree Kill, you get a Travis Kelsey. But in Andy's case, I feel like it's more about the ownership he was taking right. of what was uh, going on in the building. 100%. That's really big really gave a lot of the offensive installation stuff to Marty Morningwig, and he became more of that CEO head coach that you see around the league all the time. It's not necessarily a bad thing. But in Philly, he really did kind of take back control of who they wanted to be. You know, A lot of people have written about this. Jenny Varentis wrote a fantastic story about it in Sports Illustrated this week that everyone should check out. But you know, what Andy kind of said in, Philadelphia, in, in Kansas City was, I'm back. You know, I, I'm taking this over. I'm going to be the person that really defines this offense. And I think that he's so open-minded and he's so willing to adopt new ideas that his kind of overarching control of who they are offensively, you've seen that. You've seen his stamp on it. Well, it kind of makes the, the regime of Bill Belichick even that much more impressive because what you, kind of, what you want to say, bringing together some of the things you've been talking about for the last five or ten minutes, is that periodic change is just healthy mm-hmm. with the with the dynamic world, especially as much as the NFL is changing recently. You, you need to go through a different coaching staff on occasion. So Garrett, you know, I like longevity, but maybe Garrett really has run run his course at, in Dallas. But if that's true, 
it makes it even more impressive that Belichick has done what he's done for as long as he's Though done. Though the one sort of mark against him, I guess, in people's minds is, is, is we, we've talked a lot about Andy Reid's coaching tree, and it's incredibly impressive. Bill Belichick's coaching tree, unless they're actually playing against Bill Belichick, has seen a lot less success, <laughs> right? Um and so do you think it's because Bill Belichick himself exerts so much control over his team that, like, you know, his assistants aren't aren't given well, the same I'll, substrate I'll, to learn? Or? Let me add one thing to that. Same with the front office, and I think it's precisely yeah. because he controls the front office so much. When, so, so when guys leave to go run other organizations, mm-hmm. they, they leave with this, you know, halo effect around them, but they don't actually have the ability to implement it as well. Right. So good question for you, though. Robert, what do you think? I think that that's, those are all good points. And... The front office part is more interesting to me. I think it's more relevant because the way that Bill has been able to innovate over the years has been via personnel. So if you look at a lot of the concepts that they run in New England, a lot of them are similar to ones they've run for the last 15 years. You know, route combinations, I wrote about this last season or before the Super Bowl, route combinations have stayed not relatively static, but you see a lot of ones pop up that you would have on Patriots film in 2009, stuff like that. What's different is the way they've dressed it up. And the way that they change that stuff is via personnel. So you know, you'll see you know, tight ends running routes that running backs used to. You, know, you would see a guy like Aaron Hernandez run a route that Wes Welker would. And those guys are so different stylistically that it would look like a new offense, mm-hmm. even though it would be the same offense. Mm-hmm. So in New England now especially, we've seen this, Blurred wall, these blurred lines and these blurred walls between positional designations and the way that they're used. And James White is the number one wide receiver for the Patriots. And James White is a little tiny receiving back. So their ability to use these similar concepts and ones they've really been able to hone throughout the years, but do it with different types of players, gives their offense a new feel whenever they want it to have one. I mean, you had a game a couple weeks ago where James Devlin, who is their starting fullback, was their only back in a 10-personnel set with four wide receivers. The type of stuff they're doing in terms of personnel packages and alignment, that's what allows them to change, even if the coaches stay relatively the same. Mm-hmm. It, I've always wondered why it is that others can't follow those models. Like, What is it, what is it that allows that to be a persistent edge? When you see a team do that, I mean, it, everyone talks about the NFL is such a copycat league. You would think that the edge would go away, but it continues to be an edge. I think Belichick's discipline in really, you know, when he, he seems like a jerk when people ask him questions about previous seasons. And his response to a T every time is this is this season. Every single year they turn the page. And I feel like that really allows them to look at each team with clear eyes and say, how is it, how do, can we do the best job? and making this team the best it can be. And too many coaches don't do that. You carry over what you think works. You leave the stuff you don't. But for the most part, if you have these same coaches year after year, you're going to see a lot of the same concepts, a lot of the same designs show up. And in New England, the designs may be similar, but the way that they look by virtue of just how different the players happen to be and how different they're being used, that allows you to have a feeling of newness, even if it's not. Okay. And okay. way too many teams just don't have that. They don't change over the personnel. They don't change over the way they dress it up nearly as much as New England. That's interesting. All right, we're talking to Robert Mays. Robert is staff writer at The Ringer covering the NFL formerly with Grantland, calling from Chicago today. I want to shift a little bit to talking about the season and how you see things playing out. 
Um, I, I give it praise from a college football fan for being more interesting. But on the other hand, you could say, well, look, we've got these two teams. It's it's actually kind of like college football. We've got the Rams and the Saints. But we know there are other contenders out Chiefs there. Are, uh... Chiefs are super excited. The AFC's got a lot of interesting teams. But I want to ask about a team that snuck up on us. So we, we do power rankings for Massey Peabody and all the way to number three this this it's week. Got to be the Chargers, right? The, the Chargers are up there. So I want to ask you the question: Is this Rivers' year finally? Or another? Let's just make it more interesting about his by his draft mate, Roethlisberger, and the Steelers. What do you think about Chargers and Steelers' chances to actually do something like a long run in the playoffs this year? I absolutely think both of them could. I picked the Chargers to go to the Super Bowl before the season. Good for you. And I picked them to go to the Super Bowl two weeks ago. Wow. I feel like if your pick is still in play, then you owe it to yourself to stick with it. <laughs> and I just thought that their personnel on both sides of the ball was so impressive. I have always thought Philip Rivers was criminally underrated, and this is his best season in a long time. And it's fun. You Robert, know, I just want to be clear. You have them going to the Super Bowl, which is fine. Obviously, it's a strong pick, even as it seems like they're not going to win their division. So they're likely to be, at best, the five seed. So, because they're not going to be one of the division winners, so you have them going on the road and let's say beating, let's say the Patriots or the Steelers, and then going on the road and possibly beating Kansas City to make the Super Bowl. I know it's not an easy road, but uh, it's before <laughs> the season when I picked them, I didn't necessarily know that was that's the right. Road, so he's coming and, and, and I'll just I'll just uh, counter argue that they're only one, like one loss out of the like they've only the got Chiefs two losses. To, that's right. Chiefs have to really keep it going. To hold right. Them so I mean, they, they could win that division definitely. They still could. Yeah, I, I would pick the Chiefs just because I think the Chiefs are rolling. But yeah, it, it's going to be a tough road. I, I just it's more about a thought exercise in the sense that I think they have the talent and I think they're playing well enough to win the Super Bowl and to win the AFC at least. And I think that it comes back to Rivers and how well he's playing. He had his worst game of the season last week, and he still played pretty darn well. And then you just feel the it's a combination of the younger players they've had that have ascended and some new blood they've brought in that's really taken them over the top. And I think that Melvin Gordon is just playing out of his mind right now. I mean, every game it seems like he touches the ball, he scores a 50-yard touchdown. Mm-hmm. I mean, he couldn't crack four yards of carry before this season. Now he's at 5.4. The efficiency that they've been able to find on the ground is remarkable, and I think that that's mostly a product of stability and continuity along their offensive line they haven't had really since <laughs> Melvin Gordon's got there. I mean, what Mike Pouncey's been able to do for them at center has really solidified that group. And then you have receivers that just fit in that offense. Keenan Allen is a perfect Rivers player. They have Tyrell Williams and Mike Williams as vertical threats. I just think they're playing so well on that side. And then on defense, again, you have ascending players like Desmond King, who's had a phenomenal second season. You have guys like Corey Legion, who have always been underrated, that can play. And then you just drop a buzzsaw like Derwin James in there, who's had an just a consistent impact on them week week in week out doing just about everything and oh yeah there's a very good chance they get Joey Bosa back here sometime in the next couple weeks so by the way is this just run-of-the-mill ordinary depth of knowledge for an NFL writer are you colored by the fact that you were with Grantland out there in California for a while uh, no, I just I don't think that has anything to do with it. I've always just really liked the Chargers roster. <laughs> <laughs> so to make the case, give us a refresher on, on Rivers. You said you've always thought he was underrated. He's always played for a team that kind of underperformed. But the, the, it feels to me like the folks who pay a lot of attention to the NFL have always loved him as a QB. Can you, can you give us just a refresher and an argument for that real quick? Totally. I feel like for the first – there was about a three-year run from uh, you know, 08 to 2010 
where they were either first or second every single season in passing DVOA. If you think back to those teams, that's when Antonio Gates really came on. Vincent Jackson was an outside receiver for them. They were fantastic throwing the ball down the field. And that was in the last 10 years where the North Turner influence had changed their offensive system. Obviously, LaDainian Tomlinson is nearing the end there, but he's a factor in the passing game as well in those earlier years of that stretch. So I just think that their ability to be dominant back then when we weren't really talking about them because that was in the heyday of who the Patriots were, all that stuff. We forget that he had that stretch. And then when you've seen him with good offensive coaches and with good offensive support systems recently, there was that first year of Mike McCoy where their offense was so fun to watch. And he was completing about 70% of his passes that season. You know, Danny Woodhead was on that team. Keenan Allen was a rookie that season where they just felt like, God, if you can get open with Philip Rivers as your quarterback, if you have a knack for space, he's going to make it work. And he always has. And his ability to kind of transition from that deep downfield passing game to a more quick game, getting the ball off fast, it just showed that he was able to succeed in different types of systems. And I also just feel like when you watch him, he's one of the smartest quarterbacks that's ever played. He doesn't seem that way because he has that North Alabama twang. Yeah, he comes yeah. off as this aw shucks guy, and he's so fiery. But if you watch how quickly the ball comes out when you're, when Rivers is your quarterback and how he's able to trust the coverage so much. All right. He trusts his receivers, yes. But it's more so that he trusts the placement of the players on the field oh. relative to what he thought was going to happen pre-snap. He's willing to just uncork these throws three yards before guys get open because he understands how his plays work against the coverage that he's diagnosed. Got it. And Let me, so he, what happens a lot of good ones, but you don't normally throw Philip Rivers into that conversation with Peyton Manning and Tom Brady and when it comes to that particular quality. I have another team I'd love your perception well, on. Before we do yeah, that, yeah, real quickly, so it, let's play a, a silly game. Had Rivers gone to Pittsburgh instead of Roethlisberger in 2004? Roethlisberger's won two Super Bowls. This is an absurd question, of course, but just to give us some sense of how good you think he is, how many Super Bowls do you think they would have won with Rivers at quarterback over the same period of time? As many. At I, le- I feel like, uh, in my opinion, Philip Rivers has been a better quarterback than Ben Roethlisberger during their career. Yeah, Robert, I, this is Eric Brother. I agree with that. Um, I, I think Philip Rivers is a great quarterback. And by the way, of all the, let's call them older quarterbacks now, the Rivers, the you know, the uh, Breeze, Eli Manning, Eli Manning etc. I don't know. I don't see much slowing down at the moment for Rivers. So I think he's could easily play another four or five years. But here's my quick question. Another team that not a lot of people are talking about, pretty high up in the Massey Peabody rankings, is the Chicago Bears. Now, interestingly, the Bears have actually scored more points than the Chargers and given up less points than the Chargers, have much greater point differential. Do you put any stock? You're sitting there in Chicago, you said. Any stock in the Bears? You just don't. It's too early for Trubisky. What do you think? They've got a strong defense reasonably decent offense. They're actually leading their division. Any chance the Bears could do some damage, or they're just in the NFC and good luck? I've tried not to let myself do this. Oh, so I did hit a source point here. You might actually think they could be a decent team. Yeah, I think this is the week where I'm finally starting to get a little bit excited about it. And I've tried to hold off as long as possible because I've just been burned so many times before, and I just I want to avoid the pain. But I really needed them to just beat up the Lions. After doing what they did against the Bills and the Jets, it's like, all right, that's what you're supposed to do against the Bills and the Jets. I know the Lions aren't a good team, but they're better than those other teams. And I just needed them to come out and beat the Lions in every facet of the game, and they did. And that's what I, I loved seeing. Their defense <laughs> dominated. They scored at will in the first half when the game was still – kind of in the balance 
So that was very impressive. My concern is still about the quarterback in high leverage situation mm-hmm. because he's very good at running that offense in the sense that they're able to score, but I'm giving a lot more of that credit to the offensive coordinator and to the weapons they placed around him because every game or so, you're still going to have those one or two throws that drive you up a wall. They didn't happen last week, but they've happened as recently as a couple weeks ago. So I'm worried about those. They're always looming. And if you have one of those in a huge playoff game, then that's what's going to torpedo you. Right. But overall, I feel like this team is the best version of what it could be. Just because the defense has been spotless when Mac has played, and you know, they were pretty good when he wasn't. But those two games where they were struggling, he was hampered by an injury. The Dolphins game was bizarre. The Patriots scored two special teams touchdowns. I mean, for the most part, when he's been healthy, their defense has been really, really good. Our, that is that they've been healthy. Got it. The, the only guy they've really lost in terms of being a full-time starter that it wasn't just because they were keeping him out against bad teams is Kyle Long. Everybody else on that team has played for most of the season, especially on defense. I mean, you haven't really missed any games by any of the important players. I mean, Danny Trevathan may have missed a half at some point, but I mean that, that's, that's where we're at right now. It's one of your linebackers missing one half you know, counts as your injury history. Right. And if you can stay healthy the entire season, I think we've seen how important that is for certain teams. You know, Jacksonville last year was spotless in terms of health. They lost two starts from Telvin Smith with a concussion. That's it. And then the same goes for Minnesota. They lost two starts from Andrew, Anderson Deho, and that's why they were one of the best defenses right. in the league. Right. So if the Bears can stay healthy, I think that they can keep marching on with this. Very interesting. All right, listen, Robert, we have to let you go. We really appreciate your taking the time to be with us this morning and love your work. So good luck with it going forward. My pleasure, guys. Thank you so much. You bet. That was Robert May, staff writer at The Ringer. You can see him there for his coverage of the NFL. You can also follow him on Twitter. Great follow, at Robert Mays, at Robert Mays. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have one quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Shane Jensen and Eric Bradlow, two of my three collaborators. Audie Weiner, our fourth out and about today, teaching this morning, has been all fall. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You can join us, one 844 wharton one 844 or email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, or add us on Twitter. Our handle up there is at WMoneyBall. We take questions, we take suggestions, we take opinions on the on Twitter. We are through with our two guest segments rolling into the last half hour, really just last 20 minutes or so here. Have a few topics I want to hit. Guys, are y'all paying attention at all? To the World Chess Championship. Yeah. This is like a 12-game, 12-match series. What it's does it the work? Fir- it's, uh, a win is obviously a point. Uh-huh. A draw is half a point. <clears throat> loss is zero. I think it's the first person to six and a half points is right. the way it works. And so and I believe it's tied 2-2 at the moment. What happens Where, if they just keep on tying? Well, I mean, yeah. I, it's, it's interesting because I, I, I keep tracking this. Like, oh, it's still they're still tied up. And I'm like... Because every game has been a tie. Usually, That's when teams right. are tied up or something like that, That's it's like because they like trade wins back and forth. But no, they right. just can't. Seem they, to I don't get know a victory. if the if um, the, the champion, the current champion, would um, with you know retain the title if you like, like the Ryder Cup. Up, yeah, like right. the Ryder Cup if it ended up six and a half. So they've played they've played four matches. 
They and need some kind of tiebreaker. They need well, some kind of sudden death. Apparently action. so, because they've drawn all four of these matches. Interestingly, if you look, there's a nice visualization that who is doing this? The New York, the New York Times is giving us this great visualization where they show the, the basically in-game win probability mm-hmm. <clears throat> over time. And then, so some of these ties last a lot longer than others. So the first match, the Carlson's position, the, the defending champion, Magnus Carlson, was better for most, much of the match, but then ended up in a draw. And each match has gotten shorter. It's like they're, they're – well, they're, and they're deviating less let, from 50-50. So let me say what um, – I played a fair amount of chess as a kid. Yeah. I was a reasonable player, not, a, not certainly not a great player, but a reasonable enough player. Here's what I do know. Um, the thing about chess, especially at that level, there are what are called open versus more closed positions. And so what happens a lot early on – is this is not surprising. You'll see people play more closed positions that tend to lead to more draws. Eventually what's going to happen is uh, Caruano, who I believe is not the champion, I think Carlson's the champion, you'll see him play more open, aggressive positions. Now what does that mean? It means, as you would think in any sport, there's higher variance. In other words, he's going to open up the board more. Um, maybe you have to introduce variance because there's no stochasticity to introduce variance. Like, you know, something like baseball, football, whatever, you've got actual chance events involved. Right. Right? Chess is so essentially... Only comes, it only comes from your moves. You have to, it you only have to inject comes from it. the moves. Correct. And you have, have to inject right, you variance to inject, if you want you anything. Have, right. You have, and also the other thing that even they even talked about this in the previous uh, game where someone played, one of the players played a very rarely used unorthodox opening. It was actually a defensive move because the other player, if you play the standard opening, is extremely strong. So, for example, if if I'm the person, if I'm the aggressive person, I go first and I move up my king pawn two squares. The other person, Caruano, yeah. has a very standard play against it that it's been shown he's very good in that position. In fact, he'd rather almost sometimes be black, play against someone that goes pawn to king four. The other player knows this and therefore yeah. will not play into his hand. So I found it's almost like Princess Bride. If I know mm-hmm. that you know that I know that you know. Right. And so he intentionally didn't play that move, yeah. which didn't allow his opponent to go into what's a good position for him. So this is the first time in 46 years an American has been in this thing. So people are paying a little bit more attention than usual. But also Magnus Carlsen's kind of, you know, a big deal, has been a big deal for a little while. So fun thing to keep your eye on. From the least stochastic matchup sport to the most Hockey. These yeah. guys skate around on ice. They they pucks bounce in. I caught a I'm little gonna... bit of the Flyers Panthers last night as I was having yeah. dinner, and it was, those guys they were down two nothing going into the last period. The, the Flyers and they were playing their hearts out in that last in that last period. They almost got it. Shane, what's going on in the NHL? Right well, now? I'm a, I, I I'm going to wait until next week to really kind of or a couple weeks from now to really kind of check in on the current season with the NHL. What I really want to talk about just because it just happened this last week is the Hall of Fame induction ceremony for mm-hmm. NHL. Um, because there are several people, you know, inducted in the Hall of Fame, but I want to talk about Martin Brodeur specifically because not a bad Eric, name. Eric yep. always brings up this sort of pantheon kind of Hall of Fame within the Hall of Fame, where you've got I, I can't remember exactly how you do three, your tier. three tiers of three Hall of Fame. Tiers the first and, tier, are like maybe the top five percent of players yeah. who have ever played. And I think it's worth always kind of mentioning when one of those top 5% go into the Hall of Fame. And Martin Brodeur definitely is that. I Go- think. Can tell us what goaltender. I think he was Devils. Yeah. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, New Jersey Devils. Almost, okay. you know, essentially his entire career. And I mean, he just, just as one fact, for example, he had 691 wins. The next highest person, Patrick Waugh, had 551. So he, <laughs> do- he was a dominant goaltender. And it. Again, it's mostly with him about longevity. He played forever. What's and remarkable was a though about that? I'm just doing yeah. some basic math. You said how many wins? Six hundred ninety-one. All right. 
if you win 40 games in a season, win yeah. 40, yeah. which, by the way, remember, they're ties also, you have to do that for 17 years. Yeah. Yeah, no, well, I, I, I mean, the nice he, things about tenders, they can he play played for from a while. 1991 to 2015. All right, well, that's 24, 25 years. All <laughs> yeah, right, so you didn't have to average 40 wins That's a season, right, and I mean, but but it's interesting. So, I mean, you can sort of, again, in hockey, like baseball, like all you know, sports where there's such positional difference, it's very hard to compare across positions, goaltender versus forward versus yep. defenseman. And there, you can do stuff like, I mean, baseball's got win shares. There's this thing called point shares in hockey. And, you know, Martin Brodeur is number seventh in point shares across that. But, again, this is something that is a cumulative stat that really rewards longevity. And I mean, the top three in this, Wayne Gretzky, of course, I mean, you don't have a good stat in hockey if Wayne Gretzky's not at the top. He played <laughs> right. 1979 to 1999. He played for 20 years. As a forward, jeez. Yeah. And Martin Brodeur played for, as, as you sort of said, 20, 24 years. Gordy Howe, number three in point shares, played 1946 to 1980. <laughs> well, that that was known. He played in five decades. I mean, that was known. What? I just I think we need we to sit with sometimes. that for a second. When we talk about longevity and how impressive Tom Brady, you know, Gordy Howe played from 1946 nice. to nice. 1980. What is it about hockey that let these lets these old guys stick around? Well, I I, I think it, in that case, I mean, hockey allows you to sort of. You know, I mean, by by the end, he was not playing very much of in those course, games, right? Course. So, I mean, I think really the dynamics of hockey are such that you can kind of have this specially player that kind of sees a little bit but of ice he, time, but is it, is essentially he, protected. But does he have really good? Like, is he good with his stick? Is he must have, he must have yeah. some asset on the ice if he's he's not. Gordy Howe was famous well. for being good with his stick and also good with his elbows. He was really into. Uh, <laughs> he, is that right? I think I think he, he was he was one of the few uh, NHL players that I think probably led the league in no, both but, penalty minutes and. and but you uh, bring up an interesting okay. hypothetical question just to waste, mm. not waste, take one minute on it. Let's take Michael Jordan at age 50, 51, 52, yeah. which was when Gordy Howe stopped yeah. playing. You couldn't imagine, particularly in the NBA, someone being on the court at yeah. that age. Could you imagine a tennis player? No, not for a whole match, but could you imagine for one game? Like how many of you have Pete Sampras played, I'll make it up, Kay Nishikori right now? Pete Sampras, one game. Let's say Sampras serving even. Who are you taking right now in that game? I'm taking Pete Sampras over Kei Nishikori. It's interesting to think about sports yeah. on your You're question. You're the only one in this room who knows who, knows who Kei Nishikori He's is. He's the number five-ranked player in the world in tennis. So I would take Pete... Come on, Shane. Don't, don't throw I, me I've seen that. That's not the first time I've ever heard <laughs> well, he just the words beat, he just Nishikori. Beat, he just beat Roger Federer as an example in the ATP Finals two days ago. Yeah. All I'm trying to say is there are certain sports you could imagine someone playing five to yeah. seven minutes I will and play of, in that game. Yeah, Why no, not? No, I, I wouldn't but, think but, tennis but, would be it, though. I said one game. No, and hockey is no longer it, just for the record. There's no way Gordie Howe could play into his 50s or whatever in, in the current game. I mean, that that's something about sort of the historical aspect of hockey. Okay. That is, the, the game has changed in a, in a speed way that I, I don't think Gordie Howe could still do that. Okay. Well, the, a sport year, I've definitely limited how long you can play as college football. This week's slate is unusually weak. And what has been kind of a weak season, to be honest with you? The but there's hope because Notre Dame is going to go play Syracuse. We've been kind of pulling for mm-hmm. them to lose. We think they're overrated. If they keep on winning, they're going to be in the playoff, and it's going to be really ugly. Whoever they play is going to crush them, whether it's Clemson or Alabama. So you're kind of, I'm kind of pulling for this loss. They go into Syracuse. Syracuse, of course, knocked off Clemson last year. They almost knocked off Clemson this year. And 
there's always a chance here. There's definitely a chance that, and that's, but that's like the one game to pay attention to right now. We hope we. I mean, it's it's coming down to just a handful of. Teams. And Massey Peabody has this as a what point game? I know a game is at Syracuse. So where, what is the what is the current strength of those two teams? Oh, I don't have it in front of me, Eric. I but don't maybe five me. points, I'll, I'll six di- points, I'll somewhere in that neighborhood. Let's get you going on the NFL, and I'll come back to the college football. I'm going to guess. They're going to get three points for hosting the thing. We have Notre Dame at number 10 or so, and then Syracuse is, I'm going to guess, around 30 or something. So it's not that it's super close. It's like a seven-point, eight-point kind of thing, I'm going to guess. Mm-hmm. but That's close by that's college close. standards. That, 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 happen. happen. that happens in college all the time. Yeah. Well, let, right. me, let me just transition. It's a 10-point line, by the way. Okay. So let me just transition you said quickly to the NFL. Let me just say one bet I made last week, which I always say is a lock. And I've talked about this before on our show. And I've, since we have Massey of Massey Peabody here, I thought I'd ask you why. I've talked to you again about the lack of calibration of these models when the points spread is over 14. So we had another game last week, 17 straight times this has now happened, where the team that's been an underdog by more than 14 points has covered the spread. So the Cardinals were playing at Chiefs this last weekend, and they were an 18.5-point underdog. And again, they covered the spread. So I've asked you, just to have a discussion Mm. quickly, what about these models might be doing poorly in the extreme tails? Because this is now 17 consecutive times. Most of those models, I assume, are based on linearity, Yeah, they just assume linearity is what happens. And I mean, and and there's structures to the how NFL blowouts happen that kind of goes against that linearity. People start taking players out, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so... What's interesting about that game, by the way, is it never... During any point of the game was eight. It's not like the Chiefs were up 25, 30 points. No, and I then understand. The, the Cardinals got, scored a bunch of garbage touchdowns. As a matter of fact, but the Chiefs was, were up like ten points and probably they were, up were comfortable with ten that points most and of the did game. Did not try as hard. Yeah, I was just. Com- I know it's possible. I'm just commenting that there seems to be this now. Almost we're getting yeah. to a point where it's a regularity where these really large spreads are just too large. Yeah, and I, I kind of wonder, like model wise, what the better thing to do would it be to have some kind of nonlinear factor in there, or just kind of to try truncate point spreads at a certain point and just say, well, you know, beyond, you know, beyond a a point spread of 14, there's no real reason to go beyond that, essentially. So, by the way, before we go full on into NFL, I was slightly wrong about the rankings. We have it in Notre Dame 8 versus number 40 Syracuse. But the way college football is this year, once you get off the top, everybody's just kind of a big mess. So from 8 to 40 is only a nine-point drop. And Syracuse gets home field, and so we would make it around six or, six or seven point yeah. line. Well, that was my guess, and so now yeah. that yeah. that's a now, big delta. That's a big delta with Vegas, so we like it better. But that's because we're short. We're short Notre Dame. We've been short. By the way, we've been wrong all year as well. All right, NFL, one of the best slates of the season. What? 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 You know, let's just go straight. Let's go straight to it and walk it through. Danielle, let's talk about NFL this Sunday. Moneyball matchups. What do you got, Eric Bradlow? Well, I like a lot of the games this weekend. I oh, like it's a an lot. Incredible of, slate. I know it's just an incredible slate of games. Um, you know, I take the easiest one to like, which is the game that got moved, which is the Monday night game, Rams and the Chiefs. And so, what's interesting to me is if you had asked me three weeks ago in that game, I would have said the Rams are going to win that game because I thought the Rams looked fantastic. I've mm-hmm. actually watched a lot of the Rams games over the last couple of weeks. I'm not convinced they should have beaten the Seahawks this last weekend. Uh, the weekend before, I forget who they played. Saints. The Saints. That was These are tough games. They though. lost the game to the Saints. I know these yeah. are tough games. All I'm saying is 
It would not surprise mm-hmm. me if Kansas City won that game. No. At all. I mean, I, I think I, and that kind of, I mean, I think when we were talking earlier in the show, you guys kept talking about that this is like a two-team league. It's the Rams and the Saints. I think the Chiefs belong kind of in that sort of tier of really elite teams right now as well. I would sort of say that the Chiefs... Which, which, the Chiefs? The Chiefs, yeah. They, I think the question about those guys is their defense, right? So they've got this like world-changing yeah. offense, but they're... Can they, but I mean, do, can, can, couldn't we say the same thing about the Rams and the Saints? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, the Rams should look have a better defense than they've kind of currently been performing on paper. Uh, I mean, the Rams should look better on paper than they have currently performed. They, they are. I don't think any of those three teams are very defense focused, right? Also, fair, fair enough. And also, I think that game is extraordinarily meaningful in the following sense. We've talked about this. Any of you guys, Kansas City may look like the favorite in the AFC right now. Maybe. Yeah. Um, first of all, as we pointed out, they may not even beat the Chargers for the division. But ignoring that, let's imagine they end up the three seed. Any of you confident that they're going to go into New England or Pittsburgh? And win the AFC uh-huh. Championship game. That is, game's not going to be in New England, but uh, but let's but, pretend but it was. Is, but this yeah. is what's fun. You don't, about, you don't is, favor them in that game. No way. This is what's fun about the NFL this year. Yeah. We finally have some new blood. We can yeah. talk about. We can talk about all these new teams. They still have to go through the old teams. But at least we're not just talking about. Well, we're going to do Pittsburgh at New England. Who's going to host the game for the yeah. AFC? Yeah. No, it's true. It's true. I mean, as much as it, I, I kind of like that. Old, <laughs> as much as that old guard, rep, you know, represents my fandom, I, I, I actually agree. I'm kind of excited about that as well. Look, as we stand here right now, obviously the Chiefs have a better record than the Patriots. I mean, the Steelers have played one less game, but they have less losses than the Patriots, if you'd like. So at the moment, the Patriots, if everything goes right now, they wouldn't even be a bye. The Patriots would be the the Patriots would not have a bye week. I know, I know, I know, and and it hurts. But I mean, this is was bound to happen at some point, and it appears to be happening right now. (laughs) So yeah, all right. So that's the game that caught my eye: Rams Chiefs. So what, what what's your take on Rams Chiefs, Shane? I don't think I heard your position. Um, I think I think uh, oh I think it's going to be. I'm, I'll take the Chiefs. I'll take the Chiefs. So at the home. line the line here is yeah. three and a half. Yeah, that it, sounds about right. It's, it's in it's in Los Angeles, yeah. isn't it? Am the I, game's in Los Angeles. Oh, it it got moved from Mex- It was going to be a Mexico yeah, but it's, City. I mean, I mean, LA the Rams. The one disadvantage is they don't actually have real home games. There'll be more Chiefs fans in that stadium than Rams. I guarantee it. There are Chiefs fans in Southern California? There are no Rams fans in well, that, Southern California. That, that, that's true. Every, every game I've watched on TV from that stadium has seemed like an away game. And let me also just... So we're, we're, we're with the Rams, by the way. We've had them number one for weeks now. By the way... Finally, this week, New Orleans bumps them by just a mm-hmm. by just a nose. But we still love them. KC, we've been slow to catch up on KC. The Priors hurt, I and mean, this is the downside of Priors. Whenever you have this re- seeming regime shift with an organization, you can be a little mm-hmm. behind. And we KC for us is now number five, but that's still a good you know three points on a neutral field behind the Rams. Now I'm going to take a chance on KC. I agree. I mean, I agree. The numbers would say Rams, but I'm going to go with KC. Okay, Shane. As you look down the slate, what what game? Oh, let's out talk to you? about uh, Philadelphia, New Orleans. Uh, just why, because, like, why? Why you, local pain? You're just into that kind of thing. Well, yes, partly, but also <laughs> because I mean, it's the Super Bowl champions going into a Super Bowl contender. We should talk about this game, and we should talk about this game specifically because the Eagles are in a lot of trouble. They play the um, the Saints this week, and I think was it the Rams next week. 
And if they don't win one of those two games, they are they're really four and seven. Then they're yeah. four and five right now, playing two of the best teams, yeah. probably the two. They best do teams. still play the Redskins twice, so I mean, you know, nine and seven could win that division if they it could very well. Well, they're they're, they're, a, they're a big so Houston Shane, fan this week. I, I I know that you were at the game Sunday. Yeah, night. I was beautiful, at the game. It was amazing. It was so great. So what was so great about it? Well, I was that, cheering for the Cowboys for one. Thing. I bet not very loudly. No, not very loudly. Not very loudly. Why no, I mean, and also it was a fantastic game. Well. Because <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to take a year off from cheering for the Eagles <laughs> after what they did to the Patriots. So no, I mean it, it was it was a great game. Um, did the, you the come away with any... The stadium was was fantastic, and I guess I I haven't been to sort of a division rival kind of live game yeah. like that before. So that was just kind of exciting to experience. Did you, think, did you learn anything about the Eagles? I learned that they're not very good at defense, or certainly they don't seem to be as good at defense as what we watched last season. And it could, I mean, any you don't want to overread one particular game, but um, what Ezekiel Elliott just ran right right over him, and yeah. they could seemingly not find an answer to that guy. Yeah, yeah, and he yeah. is an exceptional athlete. I get that, but they you know had an entire game to adjust to him and could not. The the game that looks to me the most interesting is mostly because I just haven't been paying much attention to these teams, but we need to start paying attention to them. Is Minnesota Chicago, and also it's it's a it's a division rival game, so it's fun. There aren't mm-hmm. that many great division rivalries in the NFL, so when you get them, it's fun yeah, to pay no, attention. So those teams are going in. Minnesota's going into Chicago. The line is three. We make it three. But this is these are teams that are vying to for, for to make some noise in the This NFC. is a weird statement for me to make, and maybe you guys are gonna push back on this, but I feel like the North divisions, both in the AFC and NFC, always consistently give us good division rivalries. Well, those are probably some of the older teams, I'm gonna yeah. guess some of the older franchises. Because I I mean, regardless of how those two teams, you know, kind of are Generally, the Ravens Steelers always is. By the way, that's, just a I, great that's my matchup. claim for the best. Yeah. Just a quick correction: the Eagles do play the Rams, but not until four weeks from now. So the Eagles are at the Saints that we know this week. The Eagles are then home to the Giants after oh, okay. that. Then they're home to the Redskins. So even uh, if they lose to the Saints, let's say they do four and six, you're saying, all right, beat Giants at home, beat Redskins at home. You're back at six and six. You're certainly in that division at yeah. six and six. Yeah. So they do play the Rams, but it's not until the next to the last week of the, or two weeks from the end of the season. So that's another division that gives us good rivals. But the, we're, talking yeah. about, we're talking about some of the oldest franchises in the yeah. NFL. I think this key. Yeah. The, we do have a couple, some fun ones out on the West Coast. You know, for a while, Seattle, San Francisco was a really pissy thing, yeah. which was kind of fun to pay attention to. Casey... Oakland is kind of a some history. It's yeah, always that's a, always that's a weird one. It's a weird one. Which is clearly this is not the time to talk about that. Well, what about your game, Cade? So I, the Minnesota uh, Minnesota Chicago. Minnesota so Chicago. I mean, I think I'm interested in Cincinnati Baltimore as well. It's a division thing that matters a lot to both of those teams. But it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun this weekend. It's one of the best slates, probably the best slate of the year in the NFL, and definitely crushes the college slate. All right, guys, that has been another episode of Wharton Moneyball. From Cade Massey, a big thanks to you guys for listening. Thanks to Daniel Bruno on Soundboard, keeping us tight and fun and awake. Matty Dats, boss man, appreciate all the work. For Eric Bradlow, for Shane Jensen, for the recently teaching Adi Weiner, we will be back between now and then. Enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.